Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So in this episode of the Course Health series, I'm speaking with Tobias Gustum Lindstad about his chapter 12 that he wrote for the Course Health book titled The Relevance of Dispositionalism for Psychotherapy and Psychotherapy Research. Tobias is a clinical psychologist, both within secondary public mental health care and community-based primary care services, as well as in private practice. And his research concerns the relevance of philosophy for psychology, psychotherapy research and mental health care. And he's the main editor of the book, Respect for Thought, Jan Smedzlin's Legacy for Psychology. And that's published by Springer, and the link is in the show notes. So in this episode, we talk about the relationship between evidence-based practice and psychological practice. We talk about the sort of evidence which is prioritised and the prevailing assumptions around knowledge for psychological healthcare. We talk about his criticisms of the value of RCTs for generating knowledge which is meaningful for psychological practice, in particular being able to account for the unique meanings, experiences and perspectives that people have. And he likens this to what he calls the medical pill model, where psychological care is tested in the same way as a medical pill might be tested in an RCT. We talk about the problem of standardisation in psychological care and research and why humanism must be replaced by dispositionism in relation to causality in psychology. Finally, Tobias outlines the major implications of dispositionalism for psychotherapy practice, including methodological pluralism, causal singularism, avoiding pseudo-empirical research, and advancing the theoretical integration of psychotherapy perspectives. So I really enjoy talking to Tobias. It's clear he's thought very deeply about these important problems within clinical psychology and psychotherapy. And he contributes wonderfully to the argument of how dispositionism may go some way, if not all the way, to addressing these fundamental issues in evidence-based psychological care. So I bring you Tobias Gustum Lindstad. Tobias, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about your chapter 12 of the Core Health book, which is titled The Relevance of Dispositionalism for Psychotherapy and Psychotherapy Research. And this was a this was a this was a big chapter. <laughs> if I was going to use an, an adjective to describe it, initially it was big and deep and lots of yeah. different topics. Really? Yeah. I think so. I mean it had some evidence-based practice thrown in, it had psychotherapy thrown in, it had various ontological positions and epistemological positions around research and knowledge. And randomized controlled trials. Well, I've tried to make the chapter as available as I could get it. it was uh, some challenges, and uh, I needed some help help by, from the editors because uh, I have a mind that gets too things to a bit too complicated sometimes. But then again, one important thing for me was to show not only every clinician, but also in particular psychologists, that the ideas related to dispositionalism is relevant for them as well. Mm. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to certainly kind of dive into some of that stuff, I think, but your chapter was, in, was another one of those chapters. All of the preceding chapters have been like this. Well, as I'm reading it, I'm pretty much just agreeing with everything you're saying. And I'm thinking... I'm, I think just like that, but it really resonated with the sorts of things that myself and I'm sure many other listeners and clinicians have been thinking about too. Well, what has been a great, a great relief actually for me is to have been about have being involved with this course health project is to have met on other clinicians. They also think like this, but among psychologists, I think is quite rare, and it's it's quite challenging, I think, for psychologists to accept these ideas. I think that is why I've written the paper, the chapter, as I did. I suppose we should probably introduce you. Yeah, let's try. Or you should introduce yourself, at least. 
Yeah, I finished my education as a as a psychologist back in uh, in 2003 uh, at the University of Oslo. Since then, I um, worked several places, had different uh, positions, working both in hospitals uh, and in uh, on primary care level in communities. Uh, in Norway, in Norway, it's a difference between working in second. Secondary public mental health care is called. Uh, it's situated in the hospitals. Okay, so you're kind of an out an outpatient clinic, or yeah, both both inpatient and outpatient. So you're supposed to do all of these things as part of your career as a psychologist in Norway. And then, additionally, I was uh, some of the first psychologists, I think, working uh, in primary care services in the communities. So. These are places where you don't need a recommendation from your GP before going to uh, conversations with a psychologist. Ordinarily, you will have to need you will need a recommendation from from a GP. And is there is there a particular field that you work with, or a particular type of patient? Well, I've been all over uh, working with uh, adults in my. Um, my current position, but I've been working with families, children as well. As it is now, I would have enjoyed to do more research trying to clarify the relevance of dispositionalism for psychology and psychotherapy in particular. But at the moment, I'm working as a clinician within frames that are um, quite delimiting for my practice, actually. Uh, and that is also why I got interested in this in uh, in the first case. Something, a perspective that could make clinical practice more wide than it is now. So, but I don't have time to to work with it because as a clinician, you are not provided time to think. So that's a problem, I think. One of the things that has drawn me into this is that I have been quite stubborn. <laughs> I have not given up upon finding an alternative and, and now i got so much involved with it with it so i'm not able to stop so actually the research is going on even though i'm not writing all the time but there there are some publications uh, going on uh, in which i try to clarify in more detail uh, how dispositionalism will be relevant for for psychology and it's quite complicated and there's a lot of questions to be dealt with that are not dealt with in this chapter. And so maybe start by telling us a bit about about your view of causation, which sounds like a what a, a good opening question. Not a difficult at all, but but if you can think about or tell us about causation and how if you're able to recall how you were conceptualizing causation perhaps early on in your career and potentially how you've come to conceptualize it since being involved with cause health and dispositionalism. Actually, that is also why I have written the chapter as I did, uh, because, um, and it reflects, somehow it reflects my uh, development uh, how my thoughts about causation have has evolved part of the reason i was uh, interested in i became i became interested in the work of uh, rani lilanyum uh, the philosopher who is primary she's been the primary source for this book i think um Part of the reason was that I w- was not convinced that the co- that the concept of causation was relevant for psychologists at all, and I'm not the only psychologist thinking that way. So it it seems like uh, the the psychological community divides into well roughly you can divide them into two groups. One group uh, thinking about causation as something that you need statistics to get um, in touch with and the other group of psychologists denying the relevance of of causation uh, at all and this is because they're a bit more skeptical about uh, about how we should transmit statistical knowledge into work with the unique clients so 
I'm not the only psychologist um, thinking that causation was probably not relevant for clinical practice uh, as, a, as a psychologist. Well, it's a rough characterization. It's rough, but it intrigues me to find out more about these these different characterizations or categories and and it's it's a crude like all these things yeah. it's always a crude distinction in order to be able to talk about them but i wonder if you could pursue that crude distinction and, and to give us a sense of some of the different views around causation within psychology i think you know um, something that i also try to point out in my chapter is that it's a, it's a it's a influential statement from 2006 uh, established by the American Psychological Association and it has been approved by the Norwegian Psychological Association as well and uh, and also in several other countries so uh, and is this in this statement on evidence-based uh, clinical practice or psychological practice one of the these particular views um, it stands out for example they i don't know if i remember it uh, correctly but it's, it's something like the standards uh, it, it keeps the standards uh, the standard way to find out about causal relations of relevance for psychotherapy it is statistical it's it's through statistical methods and and in particular, it's uh, the randomized controlled trials. It's a research design, particular research design. So in this statement, this is uh, this is said uh, quite clearly and explicitly. So that's one way to think about causation. You need statistics to get in touch with it, with it, as I said earlier on. And the other group of psychologists, uh, they they are so this this is the mainstream view of it. Uh, and it has been, uh, state, which is stated in this uh, declaration from, from the American Psychological Association. But the other view in which all these other psychologists who are, has been skeptical about this way of thinking of things, um, it actually comes from philosophy. Uh, it comes from, uh, from the humanities, uh, Wilhelm Dilti. He was differentiating... Um, Erklären in German, that is to explain by way of covering laws. Uh, and it was differentiating this from Verstehen, that is to understand a particular person's view of things. So when Verstehen, that is to understand a particular person's view of things, is differentiated from causality, you can quickly think that Causation is not relevant for understanding people. Uh, and uh, what is it that psychologists do? We, we, we try to understand how people see, see things, possibly moderate how they see things. So this Verstehen or understanding perspective uh, in, in some marginalized groups, uh, this idea is, is quite strong uh, that this Verstehen paradigm is something else than causation and it has nothing to do with causation so i i'm i get the sense that those two ends of the kind of spectrum either accessing causation merely through statistics the other end is that that either denying causation or denying the relevance of causation to psychological or or human centered person centered practice and you're purely interested in that you know, understanding that perspective and experience, and therefore causation has nothing much to say or nothing much to do with that pursuit. Yeah. So this Verstehen paradigm, or to understand things from a particular person's point of view, uh, is of course related to person-centered practice as well as you speak of it. But to me, they would seem to be two kind of mutually exclusive positions these are two polar positions whereas an easy question is to say if you could understand some of the causal processes at play within an individual's kind of lived world you would get a better understanding of their perspective or their point of view 
at least that is how I see things now. <laughs> but yeah. I did not then because when you think of causation as something that uh, is uh, only statistically, uh, you can only get in touch with causation through statistics. Then you see things not uh, in one individual, you see things across individuals aggregating the knowledge. So if, if, you, if you stick to a view of causation as something that you have to find out about, about uh, estimating or repeating uh, measures, if that's the only way to think about causation, how could it be relevant for working with uh, unique persons? So part of what um, got me interested in dispositionalism was that it was another view of, of, this, of causation. And that causation has to be clarified through statistics. And that's the Humean view. Yeah, the Humean view, or at least, if not Hume's view, I, th I don't think we really know what Hume's view was. Uh, but uh, the what has become, it has been labeled the Humean view. It implies that you need statistics to get in touch with causation. That's right. So let's call it the Humean view of causation. That seems to be incompatible with Verstehen to understand. Yeah. But if we change the view of causation, if we say it's actually something else. That's right or it's got a different philosophical underpinning, it becomes compatible with Fichtean. Yes, I think so. And, and I'm eager to uh, complete that argument. I'm, I'm not sure if I do that in my chapter, uh, to complete that argument. But uh, at least I try to point out that possibility. And uh, I think it needs to be worked more on. So it, it's more of a, a kind of a pointing out a challenge for psychologists. This is really something that you need to work more on, uh, how we understand causation. And as you say, could it also be relevant for working with unique clients? And the interesting thing uh, is that uh, these other uh, health professions, physiotherapists and medical researchers as well, who was part of the network around the course health program from which, which this book arrives, they were quite eager about this idea. So at first I was the only psychologist. Now we are, big, there are more of us. So I'm interested to know, you were unhappy with these dichotomous views of causation via statistics or no causation at all. You thought there's got to be something which which not necessarily in the middle, that, that probably simplifies the argument, but another way. And is it the case that you were looking for some theory or philosophical framework to, to create this argument and you were kind of reading through the books or you Googled, Googled, I don't know, Rani came up on your Facebook feed or something? Well, that's an interesting story as well, yes. But, but how did this positionism, how did you come across, did you try different theories and say, well, that one doesn't work, next one? This theory doesn't work. What's the connection with, or your or your contact with dispositionism? The short story has to do with um, that there has been uh, criticisms of this paradigm in the the other paradigm that the only way to think about causality is to that you need to clarify it through through statistics. The, the, this paradigm, which is the mainstream one. It has been criticized. The problem is that they have this this crit this criticism, it has not been, as I see it, it's not going deep enough. So I have been looking for an argument that could cut deeper. Uh, and I have been looking for that along for a long time. Because the problem is that in the guidelines, when we work as clinicians, we are told that we should use methods. When we work with our clients, we sh you should use methods that are proven effective by statistics. And if you don't do that, you may do something wrong. 
there are several people people who have criticized this uh, this idea that you should you should only rely upon statistics when you work as a as a clinician. It's it's quite strange, but that's how the guidelines work. So, though this paradigm has been criticized, uh, the the criticism has not gone deep enough because they have not touched upon the very fundamental idea of what causation is. So we are still left with what is said in the the statement from the American Psychological Association that I mentioned earlier, that you should use methods that are proven by statistics. What that leaves us with is that you, you will not feel quite as free as you should be, I think, as a clinician working mm. with unique individuals. Uh, you will not be as flexible as you should be. You're not as person-centered as you should be, uh, to use that word you, that you introduced. Or you're standardized, I suppose is one way of looking at it. You're standardizing. Yeah, standardized. So people have been criticizing this for a long time, but they have not had the right, I don't know if that's the good word, they haven't had the right weapon <laughs> to to challenge this paradigm, the mainstream paradigm. And I'm... I'm eager to find out whether dispositionalism could be that could provide such um, artillery, so to speak. <laughs> I don't know. What's the backup? The backup from yeah, for what? From dispositionalism. If it fails, if it if it can't do it, it doesn't have the 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 reach or the depth. Does Rani have anything else up her sleeve that she can pull out? Well, then, then I, th- I think the world would have to change if that is if that is going to happen. Uh, that's the way to think of it. In your mind, dispositionism does that. It does the trick. It's able to to conceptualize causation in a way which is which allows that individuality of care. Yes, I think so, and and uh, at least, and I, and I think the details needs to be need to be worked out. For example, it, it's a, uh, it's this idea of singularism uh, that causation happens in in one particular situation whenever it happens, uh, uh, and um, and it's the properties that are active in each particular situations that creates what happens. So, to think of Statistics as the only way to get in touch with causality is also to deny us our, the opportunity to get in touch with the particular properties that are, um, I would not say responsible, but that, that, that are working uh, in, in each particular situation to create the changes that, uh, that happens in the psychotherapy process, for example. And... So to that end, does the RCT not offer anything or is there something that the randomized controlled trial for psychotherapy or psychology, does it tell us anything worth knowing about or is it the methods used in the designs are so constricting and so standardizing that the knowledge generated from them is just not transferable or doesn't represent any any kind of real world clinical practice is that that's obviously an extreme view but i wonder because to me it sort of seems that the arguments against randomized control trials are clearly made and i'm never quite sure if dispositionists want to get rid of them altogether and create some new type of research which is able to, to look at causation or say well we'll keep them despite their flaws and their philosophical biases but we'll weave them into our theoretical framework or it doesn't really matter because this stuff is so complex that actually it just can't be observed, if you like. The, the causal process can't be observed through an RCT. I'm not quite sure where, where, where RCTs fit within dispositionalism. You know, this group of psychologists that we spoke of that has been emphasizing the need for understanding particular person's points of view it's a person-centered practice. It has to do with understanding, and that we used the word verstehen earlier on. There are some some of these psychologists. They have been eager to to, uh, 
think of RCTs as completely irrelevant for clinical practice for a psychologist. I'm not that extreme, uh, and I don't. It's an extreme position. It could possibly be defended, but as I think of it, randomized control trials, the RCTs, they they can be relevant in many respects. For one thing, they the way I, I speak of it now, it comes from Ronnie Lilanium and Stephen Mumford. I think that RCTs may indicate that there has been relevant causation uh, going, causational processes going on. But we need more to understand how and why the particular things that happened actually did happen and, and how and why they can happen once more. Uh, and statistics cannot tell us that and RCTs cannot tell us that. So, but it, it, it can do something. Another thing that I think that RCTs can give us is, is it's food for thought. <laughs> they, they may give us something to think about. Uh, and that's a good thing. But we need more theory to clarify what and why and how do things happen when they do so. I'm going to read, um, if it's okay, just read out a quote from your book, or from your chapter rather, and get your thoughts on it. You may not remember even writing it, but it's a, lovely, it's a bit that jumped out at me. So this is how it goes. It says... Thus, there's no randomization procedure can prevent unique experiences, in brackets, e.g. memories, from being influential. We cannot take for granted that groups are relevantly similar without having thoroughly considered the unique experiences of the individuals involved. And in brackets, you say, RCT tell us that an effect might have occurred, but not why, and how and whether they will occur in the future. Yes, I think that this fits. Uh, this quote fits with what I tried to say earlier on. I think, but the thing is that this this uh, this kind of knowledge about RCTs, I know, I don't know of any psychologists who would not agree about that. I think the thing is that, despite that, these this program of using RCTs, and that's. Uh, the only way to this research, uh, this kind of research, it has this still dominant, and it's not only it's predominant. It's um, it's keeping other way of doing research away, and, that, and that's a problem. So even even though people will will not think of RCTs as 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 what can tell us why and how. And people know that we still think of RCTs as the gold standards, and uh, and that's strange because we need uh, for a science like uh, psychology, and uh, at least for clinical psychologists, we need to understand why and how, and how something might happen in the future. We don't, we cannot predict the future, but we we may have some resources to get to understand uh, how things might happen in the future. Uh, and that's what dispositionalism may give us. But then we need more theory as well. So, so if it is the case that the RCT becomes kicked off the top of the hierarchy, maybe it sits in the middle somewhere, who knows, or there isn't a hierarchy perhaps, what sorts of research, so you said theory, would, would theory take its place? Or And when you mean theory, is it theory such as dispositionalism or some other theoretical framework which begins to bind the the data if you like together or, or is it a different type of methodology that you see kind of arising or stepping forward what would you like to see to address some of the the limitations in the current structures of evidence-based practice yeah actually speaking of my own profession uh, that's that's what i know about uh, so from a psychologist's point of view um there are a lot of theories theories in psychology of course uh, hundreds you know we have freud psychoanalysis that's one kind of theory you have behaviorism that's another one uh, probably they might not think about it as a theory but it is you have different perspectives a lot of theories but what they have not done is to think of the theories as theories about properties of persons 
the dispositions of persons should be a bit careful there because in in psychology the the word disposition is used in many in many ways so but it, it's rarely used as as mm. the properties that has tendency tendencies to work in, in in different ways so it just means in psychology it means kind of inclined to be or yeah. to be a certain way yeah. something like that uh, we often speak of traits personality yeah. traits for example it could be uh, disposition uh, i don't like that way to think of uh, dispositions dispositions is not the same as traits because traits is something that you have find about out about having used statistics you you find out about it through how frequent how frequently does this person do this and that uh, has he been angry a lot of times? And because you have found out that he has a, has been angry a lot of times, his trait is that he's, a, he's an angry person. So then you use statistics. That's not the way to think of dispositions. Uh, dispositions would be what happens in the particular moment, that singularism. So if this person is angry in this very moment, uh, that's the, that's his property. I interrupted you before in your train of thought. You were saying about the pre-existing yeah. or the previous theory tend not to account or take notice of dispositions. That's right. Thanks. Bringing me back. <laughs> it's my fault. So the problem is, for, for example, we have a lot of theories about what may or may not happen in psychotherapeutic processes. We have cognitive behavioral therapies and we have gestalt therapies and we have narrative therapies and we have psychodynamic therapies, and there are a great many of these perspectives. But what they have not done is to think of all these theories as theories of ways that certain properties of persons may interrelate. So if we do that, we could possibly integrate all these different theories. At the moment, these theories, they are... Uh, they are in some kind of fight rather than uh, cooperating about describing the world with a coherent view they they try to find out which of these perspectives will give the best results statistically so what i think dispositionalism might bring us to is the opportunity to integrate these perspectives and theories and that will be a great thing, I think. Then I think I asked Samantha this question that that once this dispositionism integrates all those theories, and there's this kind of meta theory of causation, I suppose, or or it mm. becomes a meta theory of, of clinical practice, it begs the question: I wonder how effective this meta theory is in terms of achieving better outcomes. We kind of resort to this kind of scientific positivist position where well let's test it let's test it against you know theory which is as we come back to where we were don't we where you were saying these different uh, clinicians or theoreticians are arguing over what's the best theory based on the statistical outcome right we find ourselves back to square one don't we we say okay we created a new meta theory let's test it against the old theory yeah and we're still testing and reducing and testing and reducing yeah so rather rather than thinking of these perspectives as perspectives that are alien to each other, we could think of all of them all of them as attempts to put into words how different properties of persons may be involved with each other. So a cognitive behavioral therapist, for example, he has if this is right, then cognitive behavioral therapy they have models describing how various dispositions of persons uh, may relate to other dispositions. For example, if you think this and that, how will that make you feel? And then you have uh, psychoanalytically minded psychologists. They have their theory about how various properties of persons may, may, may affect each other. But then... If you think of both of these theories as describing how dispositions may work together, these two perspectives may be integrated. So that's the point. Towards the end of the book, you have a section where you outline 
five implications for dispositionism for psychotherapy practice. As I was reading it, I was, I was pretty much thinking this is these implications for all of healthcare practice, not just psychotherapy. Maybe apart from the last one, which was advancing the theoretical integration of the psychotherapy perspective. So I think that's what we touched on. But so some of the other ones we could we could we could touch on. You can just maybe elaborate a bit. One was again we may have touched on it methodological pluralism. Yeah. Well, that's the idea. That's an idea coming from Rani Lilanium and again, Stephen Mumford, their collaboration. And I think that I find it fits well with, with uh, what I said earlier, I think, uh, that there are various ways to find out about causation. RCTs is, RCT is not the only one. Another way to find out about causation will be to sit in a particular situation trying to find out about what's happening, what, what properties are in place. And, and another way would be trying to understand what goes through another person's mind. That's also a way to find about, out about causally relevant aspects, I think. So we need to allow for very many different uh, methods to find out about uh, causation. That's the idea. Um, actually, that is something that is um, mentioned by the earlier mentioned statement on uh, evidence-based psychological practice by the American Psychological Association that I mentioned earlier. They seem to be committed to a kind of pluralism as well. Uh, because they 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 tell uh, the community to accept and uh, more than only RCTs uh, as the relevant kind of research, mm. but still they stick to RCTs for causation. So that's a problem. Mm. So we need more pluralism. And I think as I spoke to to Karen and I think probably Eleanor too that. You're right that the qualitative research or non-quantitative research is often included and acknowledged as being important, but not to understand causation, rather for the Fichtean aspect to to merely understand, to provide context for the for the statistics or the statistical view of causation. But I think what Rani and everyone's saying is that actually qualitative evidence has something to say about causation that it can give causal evidence in the single case indeed uh, and how could it not that's how we work in our everyday practice we we whenever we meet another person where if it's if i don't know it could be at home it could be at work we rely upon qualitative uh, evidence all the time so why should we not that let that happen in psychotherapy? We, it's not possible to do that. And that's also um, by this statement that I mentioned, uh, they are quite explicit about the need for integrating statistical knowledge with knowledge about the particular persons. But still they stick to, uh, as I mentioned, stick to RCTs for, as the standard for finding about causality. And that's a problem. I just want to touch on one more thing, and that's about, because you alluded to it just now, in regards to what you do in clinical practice, i.e. we seek to understand people's causes, essentially their causal stories. And I wondered how clinical judgment gets or features in that. And, and if you want to just say a bit more about how the clinical or how the judgment and attributes of the individual clinician helps us begin to assess or apprehend those those dispositions or causal properties within an individual clinical judgment it's often played down in evidence-based practice isn't it it's 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 the rct and the evidence that comes first well yeah for psychologists is not played down uh, because in this statement uh, as i mentioned uh, they are quite explicit about the importance of this the problem is that the statistical evidence is still dominant. We still think of it as dominant. So that's the problem. 
I don't. I don't think anyone denies that uh, qualitative evidence is uh, important for working with uh, how people understand things. The problem is that we are denying ourselves a righteous kind of flexibility if we should only rely upon, or to a very high degree, rely upon statistical evidence. So, so there are um, a couple of more things that I think is important with dispositionalism for psychology. The one, the one thing is to avoid what is called I call pseudo empirical research, uh, and it has to it has to do with the need for emphasizing theoretical reflection. There are a lot of uh, research going on uh, that psychologists do that. When we use statistics to find out about things that we actually we could we if if we if we don't reflect for too long too long on it we can know it uh, we can know it uh, without this kind of research. Um, for example, if you, if you want to find out about whether whether or not. Uh, Unpredictable par- parents will have anxious children, for example. So, if you use statistics to find out about that, we could get the research results. Could be then, oh, now it has been proven that unpredictable parents will have anxious children. The problem with that kind of conclusion is that it's too, it's an overgeneralization. It could be children uh, that are not becoming anxious, even though they had unpredictable parents. That's perfectly possible. But we also know that it's possible for children to become anxious when they have unpredictable parents. And why do we know that? It does not come from statistics. It comes from our our ability to to get involved with uh, the di- how dispositions might relate to each other uh, in in particular situations we can it's not hard to think of a situation uh, when when a children becomes anxious because he's with his unpredictable mother but still it could be another person in the r- same room for example the ch- the mm. grandparent and the grandparent is perfectly reliable so because this grandparent is close the children is not becoming anxious even though the their parents are anxious you can have all these but this is things that we can think ourselves into we don't need uh, empirical evidence for that but doesn't that come from the verificationist position where you've got to verify that you might have a a theory or you might speculate but until in order for it to be evidence or causal evidence, it's got to be verified in a controlled way. Or yeah, that's part of the very fundamental. That, that's the very building of psychology. So uh, that we should use empirical evidence to to ground whatever we do. Uh, and of course, dispositionalism for me it's a way to challenge that psychology mm. as at its very fundamentals. So in your chapter, you talked about how evidence-based practice has influenced psychotherapy, particularly with the reliance on randomized controlled trials. And you've called this the medical pill model of psychology or psychotherapy. Maybe you could tell us a bit about what, what you mean by that and what underpins that description. Yeah. At other places in the book, in this book, at other places, they speak of a model called the biomedical model. That's not the same thing as the medical model, what you uh, described as the pill model. That's the way I um, uh, prefer to speak of it, actually. And not uh, that's uh, a pill model rather than a medical model. I I can tell you why. Uh, And I'm writing about that in the chapter. Um, It's important to differentiate the medical model in psychotherapy research uh, from what has been called the biomedical model. 
It's a difficult story, and I and I historically these two models they might be there might be some historical relations, but still it's a difference. Um, the medical model is, uh, as we speak of it in psychotherapy research, it's a way to think about how psychotherapy should be both studied and also how psychotherapy should be provided. Uh, and it's like thinking of it like uh, like a pill. And, and the reason I th- want to speak of a pill is that medicine is actually a much more complicated model than the medical model. <laughs> so in medicine, the the methods and and the the treatments provided are ordinarily much more complicated than the medical model. So the medical model is a metaphor. But a better metaphor would be to call it a pill model, I think, because it's it's like giving someone a pill that has been tested, right? And it has been tested through randomized controlled trials. It's like antibiotics or something. So we need to test it several times in order for to, to make sure that it works on a proper amount of people. And if you think of psychotherapy in the same way, as a pill, we get one way to think of psychotherapy that is called the medical model. That is, we should, for example, this has been done several times with cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's quite infamously, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, the, often the treatment in choice because it, we one has been able to test psych, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy in the same way as we test m- medicines or drugs. The problem uh, is that if we think that psychotherapy should be tested in the same way as we think that a medicine or a drug should be tested, then we have to rely on statistics. So related to this pill model, which is the mainstream way to think of psychotherapy and how it should be tested, is the Jungian perspective, of course. But psychologists, they they have not recognized that. They have been criticizing the medical model from several angles. And also in in the the statement on evidential uh, on evidence-based psychological practice that I spoke of published by the American Psychological Association, actually they are also criticizing uh, the medical model, the, the pill model, but they does not the criticism does not cut deep enough because they are still addicted to this way of thinking about causality uh, in the Jungian way. So what is really important about dispositionalism for psychologists is that it provides us with a deep-cutting way to criticize the pill model. Because the other earlier criticisms, actually, they have not, they have not been influential enough yeah, and so maybe just make that connection between how dispositionism contributes to that to that cutting criticism or that argument against evidence-based psychotherapy as as you see it as you described it, meaning the reliance on randomized controlled trials. Yes, uh, and actually, actually, it's what dispositionalism pro- is able to provide. I think is another way to think of. What is clinically relevant competency? From from the perspective of the pill model, it will be to be able to to rely on theories that has been tested through empirical experiments so that we can use probabilities, probability estimates to, uh, to rely on in our services. From the perspective of dispositionalism, clinical competency is something completely different, I think. It's not about trying to get the most probable result and repeat that from from the studies in the clinic. Mm. It's about understanding what happens in the very context you're in. It's about getting in touch with the properties of the persons that are involved. 
uh, and clinical competency is really about that, not about relying on statistics. So that's the difference. I may, if if you like, I may uh, if I'm if I may cite myself from my chapter. Is that possible? Of course you can. Yeah, it's your chapter. It's your podcast. So where the medical model, that is the pill model, portrays clinical competency as the ability to use psychological knowledge in such a way that it leads to statistically probable change. Dispositionalism, on the other hand, emphasizes our abilities to critically calibrate our knowledge of the vast amount of possible and impossible relations between dispositional properties of persons. That's another way to think of clinical competency that will, will it must be much richer, I think. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Earlier on, you asked me a question about how I got involved with the course health part of the story I have told you about. But the, the other part of the story, it was that I was looking for a way to sort all, sort all these things out. I, I wanted an alternative to the Eubean perspective. Uh, and when I got hold of that book written by Rani and Stephen from 2011, it's called Getting Causes from Powers. When I read that book, I was um, overwhelmed because I had some answers, at least some possible answers. And then I, find, I found out that Rani Lilanium, she was actually living in Norway. So that was a happy coincidence. It's just a personal story. So I, I, uh, I don't know. That's a Norwegian expression. You, you, it's called to man as I op. That's to to become like a, a man who's tough and brave enough. So I may. So I, I got. I tried to make myself brave enough to make brave enough to make contact with Rani. So there it started. So it, it's been a happy time since then. But what was interesting is that that was the paper. So it was the the or the, the book, getting causes from powers, which was a book. But I know that they've got a paper, a shorter kind of brief summary paper. So is it the case that you were having all these kind of thoughts, thinking there's got to be something more, and then stumbled across that book and thought, "Haha, yeah, this is it." Kind of. But I knew about Stephen Mumford's work from earlier on when I was a student. Okay. So it's not. It's not a. Uh, okay. The coincidence was that she was living in Norway. I didn't know that. So that's a happy thing. That's a happy thing. Tobias, thank you so much for taking us through your chapter 12. Same to you. Bye, Tobias. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.